Hello and welcome to Tales from the Leeds Library, the Leeds Library's podcast series in which we talk to members of our extended community about their lives, their work and their relationship to books, libraries and literature. Founded in 1768, the Leeds Library is the oldest surviving subscription library of its kind in the UK and throughout this series we'll also be diving periodically into the library's rich history to find out what makes us and our members one of the most interesting and unique cultural institutions in Leeds and the UK. I'm Molly McGrath, the Project's Assistant at the Leeds Library, and today our guest is Yvonne Battlefelton. Yvonne Battlefelton, author of Remembered, is an author, academic, host, creative producer and writer. Remembered was long-listed for the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2019 and shortlisted for the Jarlek Prize in 2020. Winner of a Northern Writers' Award in Fiction in 2017, Yvonne was commended for children's writing in the Faber and Lynn BAME Prize in 2017 and has titles in Penguin Random Houses, The Ladybird Tales of Superheroes and The Ladybird Tales of Crowns and Thrones. Yvonne teaches creative writing at Sheffield Hallam University, where she is a principal lecturer and humanities business enterprise lead. Host of Write Your Novel with Yvonne Battlefelton, a write-along podcast series developed with New Writing North, Yvonne creates and hosts literary and storytelling events and opportunities. She has recently completed her second novel and her first middle grade adventure. Hello, welcome. Thank you so much for for chatting to me today. So if it's okay with you, I I want to split this podcast into two sections uh, because I've read Remembered and I loved it and I want to talk about it in a bit of detail. I also kind of want to discuss you and your career as a writer and your relationship to books and writing um, kind of, yeah, separately. So you were born in Pennsylvania and you grew up in New Jersey and lived in Maryland. Can you tell me a little bit about your relationship to writing and literature and how it first started Uh, Were you always a bit of a writer? Were you always into reading or did it come to you later? Um, I would say I was actually a talker first. So, I mean, I could talk to anyone about anything. And um, I think that led to me being like, oh, I want to write. So Mm. I was nonstop. Like my grandmother thought I was going to be a newscaster or something because I was just like always talking. But then there was something about a story, too, that I absolutely have always loved. So reading has been a way that it kind of transforms the world around you. It takes you to different places. You get to um, I was always the main character in everything I read. So I got to have like all these really interesting adventures. And then I got to talk to people about them. And I always I loved it. It was like magical. My combination of wanting to talk and then falling in love with books and you know seeing my place myself in these books I felt like it was a combination that was it was inevitable I was always wanting to be a writer and always going to be a writer even if I was writing for myself because I could entertain myself in that way Mm -hmm. so I think my love for books it came like really I can't say there was a defining moment I just feel like they were always in my life and I've always loved them and always felt like they loved me back Mm. it's interesting that it's that that um idea of yeah kind of the the story is what what you love and then writing is is the kind of just the craft the way to get to the story Um, that's a great way to put it because I think that's exactly what it is it's when mm. I look at um even now like all the things that I love to do it comes down to the story Mm. and being able to touch people for me at least is through that story that's also how I get to know people and it's how I get to know places 
I get lost every single place I go. But mm. if there's a story that leads me from this place to this place, I'm going to remember that story and that journey. And that's what's going to lead me where I have to be. Mm. And it's also, I think, when you come to storytelling through engaging with other people and and telling stories like even as a child I remember telling stories you're you're kind of you're you've got that background in creating stories for an audience as well so it's almost kind of a natural progression then into into writing you know what that might be it might exactly be that because I know I talk to people all the time and they'll say um I write but I just write for myself or as long as I like it and you know it's and I'm going like what like yeah, um, that's a diary entry. Like, you know, when you write your diary entry, that's completely for you. No yeah. one needs to understand the connection. No one, you know, ever needs to see it. But yeah. outside of that, as a reader who is not in your head, I'm like, I'm going to need you to, you know, give me some clues and show me. Some yeah. But maybe that is it's my relationship to words and talking that maybe gives me that that ability. I used to be able to tell a joke. It took me 20 minutes to tell it. But um. It's, I would tell the joke in my head before I told it like to the person. Yeah. So I would be laughing, like actually in tears, <laughs> cracking up because I knew what was going to happen next. And it took forever. But the audience would be like, oh my gosh, like, please like tell me like, and by audience, I mean, this was like family and friends. Yeah. But thankfully I wasn't like on a stage going, and then there's this joke and then just cracking myself up. But this is something magical in a story and giving it to someone and having them understand or feel mm-hmm. something that you wanted them to feel or feel something you weren't expecting yeah absolutely and do you I mean do you remember what books and or writing or I mean I guess then also storytellers um kind of inspired you or really affected you at that age you know um other than um so a swiftly tilting planet was one of those books that I just I absolutely loved it and um I can't really tell you why it was mostly, you know how you read some books and there's a feeling that you get. There's a um, just some sort of magic. You feel yourself as the main character and you're slipping through the pages. Mm-hmm. And A Wrinkle in Time was probably actually even before A Swiftly Tilting Planet. I feel like mm-hmm. A Wrinkle in Time was one of those books you kind of just co- go back to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could always enjoy it, especially when I was reading it as if myself as the main character. It wasn't until rereading these books with my kids that I'd be like, oh, wow, there's, there's no black people in it. Mm. Like no other people of color. Or if there is, there was, um, I feel like it is A Wrinkle in Time where it said like uh, well into the book. Like after I was sitting there reading it with my kids going like, oh, I love this book and you're going to feel it. It's so magical. And then it was like in so-and-so with the black boy. And I'm like, what? Mm. Um, and then and the character wasn't, you know, like fleshed out he actually hadn't done anything other than being black there was no he had no magical quality like in reading to reading books to my kids when I started seeing that absence and being like Mm. wow wait a minute so the same books that I loved and the same books I imagined myself in and I was having these adventures I can't pass them on in that way to my kids so um I think part of my writing it's that love of story that love of connecting but then also that advocacy for like if these books don't exist for kids of color or if my kids couldn't pick up a book and be like yeah I see me in it well then Mm. I need to write those books yeah is that a consideration well how do you think about the audience when you write then are you thinking both of of a black audience and a white audience so a white reader would be reading it and they they would be immersed in the story and they would feel um you know that they were the main character but they that they would they would also know that they weren't and that was an experience that they 
couldn't relate to in the same way. I think it is both. And I think it's it's beyond black and white. And, um, you know, through like, I want everyone to be able to read it and to be able to see something of their own story in it, mm. even if they're saying, okay, this particular circumstance couldn't or didn't happen to me, but being able to relate in some way emotionally to connect like their want or need or whatever to something that they see the characters want or need their journey. And for some readers who are saying, well, this is nothing about my experience at all. There's still things like for Remembered, I feel like there's family. Mm. There's that mother and son relationship. There's that worry that most you know mothers have for their kids. There's mm. that relationship of love. and um, But also even sisters, like how many of us have siblings? And that relationship between loving this person, but finding them the most annoying person on the world. Mm. <laughs> and and what that tension might be like between the two. So there are things that we want that are universal, and that might be safety or love and belonging, um, things around identity, some of the same things we're worried about. And then sometimes it's there, it's the the overarching, you know, concern, and they might seem to be shifted by who's experiencing it. And that mm-hmm. sometimes I think for us pulling ourselves out of it as, as, like, as a human experience. For me, I I still remember when I was probably about 16, 17, and I was in New Jersey, and my mom had decided she was going to move to Germany. And I was like, you know, by herself. And I was kind of grappling with like all these feelings of feeling abandoned because I was the good child, like between my sister and myself, I was the one that like, if you were going to, if you could stick it through her, like I was, you know, a breeze (laughs) to like be a mother to. So I was like, wow, like what's going on? And um, I started reading these books by like Toni Morrison and Alice Walker and Maya Angelou and Zero Nair Hurston. And I started like, being introduced to these characters who could do things on the page so, because these writers were phenomenal and they were mm. able to put you into a world that you you know didn't recognize. I didn't recognize myself as any of the characters. Um, they were from a place that I wasn't from and they spoke in different dialects that maybe I wasn't necessarily accustomed to. But reading it was like, wow, okay, I can see what it might be like for people that you love to do things that you don't like Mm. and how sometimes it's not about you. It's actually about them, that person, that character. And those books, I feel like made me a more empathetic person. Mm. So that's what I'd like readers to get that I might not be in this book. It might not be about me. But I can look at this character and I can see their complexities and I can look at outside of this individual and what seems to be their choices. What are their choices within this context? So mm. writing is really, a lot for me. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's really interesting you say that because I think that in, I mean, I've only read Remembered, but the, the, the all of the characters in that, their psychology is so well thought out and their relationships and they're not always positive all the time and these characters they're so nuanced but ultimately it's their kind of love for each other and their relationship that you're invested in oh thank you um that's what it's each individual character has their own story and they all have what they want and what they need and what they're willing to do to get what they want and I think for me writing it like I I didn't know who was going to do what next. Um, They often surprised me. They hurt me. There were times I was crying. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you would do this. And then I'm going, mm. well, of course you would do this because what other choice do you have? Yeah. And what might power look like for this character and what might agency look like for that character? So yeah, in the writing of it, that's actually how I came to see how they were. And they developed yeah. this, you know, through the writing and the scenes. But you're right, the thing that they that connects them might be love or it might be family and overall 
what they're willing to do to keep it. So I, I, I want to briefly talk a little bit about children's writing because you mentioned kind of reading books for your to your children um, and you've written some books for children yourself. Um, so there's Ladybird Tales of Crowns and Thrones and Ladybird Tales of Superheroes. So I'm curious how you find the process of writing for children as opposed to adults. So for the Ladybird ones, that was um, it was a completely different experience because those mm. were rewriting myths. Mm. So they already have their own story and their own, you know, um, origins and histories. And so what I was doing was rewriting those for a contemporary children's audience. And so I think initially I read and reread that brief um, completely wrong. Like each time I read it, I read something new into just the, the brief of it. So my mm. first time, like the first draft was completely fantastical because I'm going, well, if no one knows that Thor said this thing, then no one knows that he didn't say this thing. So I'd be writing things that like, you know, didn't happen or things that might have happened based on what did happen. Mm. And then like the... um at the time, Louise Stowell was the editor and she's like, you know, this is really great. This is great. But, um, you know, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so kind of just, you know, bringing it back to the, the actual myths and looking yeah. at you know, that source and just like rewriting it for the contemporary audience. So I think it probably took me like the second time to be like, oh, OK, so a little less like what if and a little more like, so this is what happened. And once I feel like I kind of understood that I would, you know, mm. get back on track and be able to do it and then completely like misunderstand it again. But um, so for me, at least rewriting myths is a completely different monster than mm. um, the other children's fiction that I do. So I was able to write, um, I had a commission for um, Writing on the Wall, Liverpool writing organization. Mm -hmm. And we did writing um, superhero stories and it goes, it's in their anthology about um superhero stories for of diverse characters and so mine is a character who does the right thing um for the wrong reason or is it the yeah so he's trying to um foil someone's plans and it turns out he ends up doing a good thing and learning something about the person and himself in the process because I love writing a villain and that was, um, it's a lot of fun because, you know, I mean, of course, kids have this imagination and they um, they see things sometimes in different ways. So that part was fun. But then I've written my first adventure manuscript, which is a bit more challenging because I wanted it to be for middle grade readers mm. it's because I had a um, book club for middle grade readers. And so um, I wanted to write something kind of like, well, what might they enjoy reading? And for this manuscript, it was a lot of like, hand-holding um more just to to I couldn't leave as much up to to nuance or as much up to oh they'll figure this out because really what point of reference would they have had mm. so that part was harder not um speaking down to them or anything like that but just making sure there were a lot more breadcrumbs for them to follow to lead them to some of the solutions and then remembering not to be um because I also write murder mysteries <laughs> it's remembering no way, I didn't not know to that. Be, that's how I fell in love with um I guess as an adult, I feel like I was reading definitely more murder mysteries. Like after reading um, Alice Walker and Zorna and yeah. Hurston and all those, and I started reading um, more murder mysteries. And so I think writing, I thought I was going to write murder mysteries. That's um, so interesting. Yeah. I, I, well, I mean, I can see how uh, not all of it, but elements of that maybe tie into Remembered because there is this kind of question of what happened the whole way through, which, you know, 
yeah I don't want to I don't want to give too much away actually I was going to say something about that but <laughs> yeah I think at the heart of it um I might be returning back to mystery when I look mm. at um yeah I'm writing now a um well because my manuscript this the superhero one is it's finished and I'm going to start sending that out to agents and um like kind of see what happens mm. and for um the next one that I want to write is a teen mystery mm. series set in New Jersey, but set in this place called Sweetwater, which is um, where I, I grew, I want to say I grew up, but I feel like I grew up in so many parts of New Jersey. Mm. So a place, one of the places I grew up um, and it's beautiful. And it's like, it's one of those lovely places that you could return back to. I haven't been back, but one of those places you could return back to, but I always think of it like, wow, what a great place for a murder. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> They should put that on their brochure. It's an interesting thing to think of your childhood home. <laughs> I think they'd love to hear it that now. <laughs> They'll be like, we need a slogan for a sign. I'll be like, I have one. But well, so in case they don't take that up, I'm writing a mystery about it. Well, I mean, speaking of, of New Jersey and, and Mar- well, you, you lived in Maryland as an adult, but I kind of wonder how you find the, the literary scene uh, in the UK differs to to the literary scene in America it's funny because I can't say that I was all that active in it so let's see I moved we moved here in 2013 and in 2009 I think that was when I finished my MA um and I did that in writing fiction and creative nonfiction. so I have a dual concentration and one thing I really learned from that program was about community the writing community mm. and so like through my undergrad and through most of my master's I went through like just going to campus, doing a class, going to the library, leaving, like coming home, momming or going to work. Cause I was doing all mm-hmm. that while I was working full time. And so I really didn't do much on campus at all. And, you know, they have events, they have like societies, they have all these groups. I didn't know about any of them. Cause it was like, do I have a class there? No. Okay. Like I just didn't even know it existed. So it wasn't even like I was um, prioritizing one thing over the other. I just had no idea about all these community things going on. And then with my master's for the first part of it, I was doing fiction and I was doing the same thing. I had classes in Baltimore and classes in DC and I was traveling to, and we lived um, outside of Baltimore. So I would go to like work in Baltimore and then go to class or like work in DC. But it was like, I was there so briefly just like doing the class or going to the library. I take the kids on a Saturday, we'd go to the library and get my stuff. But even then, it was kind of like the trip across the campus to the library, <laughs> but yeah. not like, oh, let's look at this and look at that. And then they had um, toward the end of my degree or what toward the end of what what toward what would have been the end of my degree. Um, they had a class in Florence and it was a nine day intensive class. And you could only go if you took a class there that you hadn't taken yet. Mm-hmm. And of their list, the only one that I wanted to take that I hadn't taken was creative nonfiction. So I was like, yeah, like I really, you know, I hadn't been to Italy. And so this was the perfect opportunity. So I went and it was such an experience because it was all around that like community building. So Mm. we had workshops, but I don't know why it was different in Florence than it was (laughs) on campus. But, and we did a lot of writing together. We walked through this beautiful cemetery and you're like taking notes and, and wondering and asking questions and going through and then there's talks and you're going into museums and experiencing them as a writer with an, a you know a group of other writers and you're sharing like 
problems and challenges and mm. the writing and, and celebrating it. And it was like, oh my gosh, I want more of this. Where has this been all my life? And they're like, yeah, right here. Um, <laughs> and I ended up adding creative nonfiction to my degree. So that, that's why I have a dual concentration. Mm. And for me, it was like, it was that start of something. It was also for me a way of looking at, so sometimes when I'm facing a challenge, I go through and I look at, if, so if I was the main character, um, what do I want? What's standing in the way? Mm, mm-hmm. What am I willing to do to get it? And it helps me to kind of plot out different scenarios because I don't plot in a book or in a story, but in life, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Okay. It also reminds me that the people in my life, if I consider them characters, there's things that they want. And yeah. sometimes those things aren't the same as what I want. Yeah. So it was a nice way for me to kind of go back to the idea like, okay, wait a minute. What do I want? I do want things outside. Like I went through this longest time um, of like when people would say, well, what kind of music do you like? And I'm like, oh, like uh, it was music I would have never listened to otherwise. Mm-hmm. And then it'd be like, um, what do you like to do? And I'm like, oh, I like motocross. So I'm like, wait a minute, do I? My older son liked motocross. So I was taking him to motocross and then we do not. And I'm like, do I personally like it? Like, I don't know that I personally <laughs> do. <laughs> yeah. So it was for me, that trip was like, it was a return to myself and then yeah. also a chance to look at, well, there's all this stuff going around me with all these people who can kind of, you know, you help one another and you're supporting one another. So that love for that writing community for me, like started in Florence and it's just yeah. first ever since. It feels like a very, um, a very main character move to decide you're going to move halfway across the world. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, do, you think, sort of do you think that came of that mindset or or was it uh was it the course that drew you or what why kind of why did you decide to move well you know so I should say that um also when I moved from New Jersey to Maryland it was mm. because I was reading a lot of books that were set in Maryland mm-hmm. and I convinced a friend that we just had to move to Maryland and I like to this day I don't think she ever asked why yeah and um <laughs> and I don't know if I would have said like have you read this book and she'd have been like wait it's it's fiction. <laughs> so, um, so that, so I can't say this, like, there's a precedence, um, but it started with Maryland of me moving yeah. because of words or stories or whatever. Um, so moving to the UK was because there was a creative writing PhD. And at mm. that point, like, so after Hopkins, I was, um, I was a director of public relations at a small company. And that was a lot of fun because it mm. meant, you know, creating experiences and writing about it. And I, but I felt like, um, I wanted to do a little bit different. I wanted to take to make a shift. And um, I was given an opportunity to teach at a university that I had gone to, um, to teach adjunct. So like, you know, part-time and I started doing it and I was like, oh, you know, actually I quite like this. And then I started doing it at another school that um, at a community college that I had gone to. Mm. And then I was like, oh, actually I really like this. So I started doing more and more of that and then less and less of the PR work. And I ended up like um, just doing more of the teaching. Mm. But I knew that um, at least to get a full-time faculty position there, I needed a PhD. And we were living on the East Coast and the, the courses that I saw were on the West Coast. So it would have meant moving the kids anyway. And then um, one of my colleagues was doing a degree at Lancaster. And I think I thought she was doing a PhD. And I think I thought she was doing it um, online. She was doing it online. But when I applied, um, I do remember joking with the kids and saying, like, wouldn't it be funny if, you know, if it was in England and ha ha ha. And they're like, yeah. And then I applied. And when I was accepted, they were like to study in Lancaster. And I'm like, wow, 
what like <laughs> so I yeah. contacted them to find out like is that what you meant or like you know I was thinking is that how they say online there and um and they were like yeah you know you're writing about slavery we just assumed you'd want to do it here and it had never crossed my mind to do it like yeah. in England part of that though I think is because slavery always feels like this U.S. you know institution mm. this U.S. like thing and you forget that like we didn't invent that mm. so, yeah um, absolutely so coming here just felt like um I wouldn't have done it without my kids like yeah. so I spoke to them and um and asked each one like uh would you be okay with moving and I thought my my oldest was going to be the hardest because she was in uh she was going to be going into her final year of U.S. high school she wanted to go to um U.S. university uh, you know because it was like that was the thing and um moving here would have meant like either year 13 for her which we don't have we stop at you know 12th grade yeah and like, what was the university going to be like? So I offered that I could defer my place. And then that way she could finish in the U.S. and then kind of start, you know, university before the boys and I moved. And she was like, no, let's do it. Because she was like, people don't just move to other countries for like yeah. things that they want. And I'm like, wow, like first, like who knew that she thought there were limits to what people can do? Yeah. And so since she was like, let's do it, like we did it. Yeah, so, like, that's so brave. That is so brave. I wouldn't have I been know. that brave at that age. <laughs> I like I'd like to think that I would have because like that was around the age where my mom was yeah. deciding that she was moving to a different country. Mm. And if she had asked, I feel like um I would have been like, of course, like I'll, you know, I'll come with you. Cause I wouldn't mm. have thought like, um, oh yeah, I'll stay here and I'll, you know, and I'll just do whatever like I'm gonna do. I had a, at that time, I think a very clear idea of what I was going to do. Mm. And like I was gonna go to university and I was gonna do all these things and like um, but then her moving kind of just it shifted my plans. And so mm. I knew that I couldn't come here without my kids being like, yeah, I want to do it. Like I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done it otherwise really. Did that, did that feel like sort of a full circle moment then that kind of that, that move? It definitely did. Like being yeah. able to bring them along. Um, and our first, um, like the first round of applications for our visas, they weren't approved. Like the, mm. my daughter was approved, the boys weren't approved. And I was like, oh my gosh. And then they're like, you could appeal it from, you know, from here, which would have meant me coming and potentially mm. my daughter and then trying to do it with my boys over there. And she was like, I'll stay with them in the US while you go to the UK and do it. And then I'm like, oh. and then ultimately we ended up reapplying. And mm. she was like, like phenomenal but she, she still is phenomenal and she paid for the boys for their new application I'm like oh my mm, gosh but uh-huh. um it all went through and everybody was able to come but it was would have been such a different journey yeah if I um I know that people study and sometimes they, they're not able to bring their kids and for me I just feel like the reason that I wouldn't have done it was because I know for yeah me what that felt like it sounds like ultimately that this kind of this decision that your mother made in your childhood, which kind of knocked you off course, has actually meant that life doesn't have to be this linear path. You don't have to have it all planned out. You kind of embrace every opportunity as it comes, even if it's not quite as you expected. I think that's what I've had. Like, yeah, I think that's that's probably the and, best. And ultimately, that I mean. makes better stories, I think, <laughs> you know, where it's not uh, certainly with this with murder mysteries it's it, it's it, you want something that's not expected you want that twist don't you like, maybe that's too tenuous of a link but, but I want to to talk about um creative writing in universities so you, you completed your PhD whilst raising two kids and you know I'm sorry three, as, three kids I'm so yeah, yeah. sorry <laughs> and as you said your your journey into into university wasn't straightforward or how you necessarily expected it 
Um, so I'm curious from your perspective as a student and now also as a teacher, what do you think that you can learn through writing in universities that you can't from life and vice versa? So what does life experience give you that you know, a university education doesn't necessarily? I think for me, because I can only speak from my framework. So what they gave me, the PhD helped me to center myself and my writing in a way mm. that I hadn't been doing. So after my master's, I was teaching writing, but I wasn't actually doing a lot of writing. Mm. The writing I was submitting was from my, um, from my thesis. But as far as writing new things, I really kind of didn't make the time to do it. And so doing the PhD, of course, meant that I had time to do it. I had to make time to do it. I had to make it a priority, which mm. at that time was something I hadn't been doing a lot of, making myself a priority, making what I want a priority. Mm. And so the PhD, I always feel like it was my selfish pursuit of me. And I'm so glad I did it. Mm. <laughs> and so it meant like, um, you know, making a schedule where writing was, you know, part of the day. And then the other research that goes into the writing was a part of the day. And when was I going to be doing the teaching part of my day and kind of building everything. So it was around momming. And so like, I didn't have classes either, um, like, my schedule was really good while I was here, especially at Lancaster, so that I could um, take my son to school, my youngest, mm -hmm. take him to school, go with him, and then come back and either teach or research or do whatever I had to do. And then also pick him up from school, which was like, you know, like there's things in your day that you really value. And for me, mm -hmm. that was what I really valued. So it was really nice to be able to craft my day around those things. But having that structure where you're, you have deadlines, I'm deadline driven. And mm. so I had deadlines. It gave me that. But also I knew from day one that I was doing my PhD differently than I had done undergrad and then I had done my MA. So mm. I joined like um, I had a radio show while I was there um, through the they had a society. Um, I joined the radio show because, you know, I like talking. <laughs> and so um, I had a chance to develop my own show. So I interviewed writers about how they make a living with their words so that I could look at how I can make a living with my words. Yes. And then um, I did all these like, business related things, which is great because I was looking at, so what am I going to do with my degree? And also I come from like my grandmother owned four houses because she has four kids. And so like I come from a line of, you know, people who or a line of women who are um, preparers and you know doers so it was like so what am I going to do and, and how am I going to do it so I was going to all the enterprise you know meetings and, and team mm. things and stuff like that and which was great because they ended up sponsoring my visa when I um, completed my PhD mm. I um, convinced a friend to uh, help me to launch a literary salon so we had a monthly literary event where we had people gathering writers reading to us with food and music I needed these things I needed that sense of community mm. and then also um, a true story open mic night because I get to know people through their stories and places mm. through their stories so I started centering I think my need for stories and also stories around um, like it was such an important part of my life and my research and my writing and my like just who I am and my core mm. and if I hadn't done my PhD I don't know how, when I would have come to that realization that like, okay, you know what, there's something that you're, that's missing that you need. And actually you need to create it yourself. Yeah. So I might've gone around looking for those things and waiting, you know, hoping to find a, an event that felt like this or an event that did that. Whereas now I'm like, why would I wait? If it's not there, um, mm. I can't wait for someone to, to say, I know exactly what you need. And yeah. then you know, for them to be right and then wait for them to, you know, put it together and then I'm going to go. No. So now I'm more likely to do things yeah so I don't know like 
Um, if I hadn't, I know that I wouldn't have come to the same conclusion at that time. I also know that my writing wouldn't have been as strong because after I did my MA, I wasn't sharing my writing with anyone. Whereas during the PhD, I 100%, like I had Jen Ashworth and she has been like um, such a wonderful mentor and, and supervisor that, so it's the writing, but then also my writing life, which mm. she, you know, shared contacts and information and you see her doing so many things that you're like, wow, like, I want to, I want to, you know, do those things and kind of um, follow that path. So for me, I wouldn't have been the same writer, I don't think. And I mm. wouldn't have been um, seen how much of a community I can influence on my own through yeah. creating things. So that's the difference, at least for me. And I think vice versa, that's, it's going to be the yeah. same thing. I think it, it, it forces you to take yourself and your work seriously doing a, a quote unquote creative degree. I think it's, a, you know, similar for, um, across a range of creative degrees because you, you people often kind of they they wish they could be a writer and it's a hobby but actually if you don't go all in and you don't take yourself really seriously you don't improve I think you have to really commit to yourself and I think that's the the great benefit of doing a creative degree I think so and I think people who who already know how to commit to themselves and know how to um make it so that they're like, this is my craft. This is what I mm. do. I'm writing as writing and writing as a business and I'm writing and doing all those things. Then they don't necessarily have to go to a degree if they mm. already have those networks of people who can read their work and, and give them constructive feedback, mm. then maybe they can, you know, maybe they don't need all those other different things from the degree. Um, I know what I needed and I know, I feel like I got what I, what I needed. It's just knowing where to get those other things if you do need mm -hmm. it without that degree so how can you you know cobble that experience together so that you're going yeah I'm still getting feedback I'm still learning and growing and developing I'm engaging with other writers I'm a literary citizen and you know yeah doing all those things you can you know and it, and it really supports people who maybe they are I mean who, they are fully committed to themselves and their dream of being a writer but they don't that realistically they can't because maybe you know like you they're a working mother yeah. they need the they need kind of almost permission to give yourself time and space and resources to write I think yeah it, it does seem about um I know for me at least at that stage at that time in my life I had lost touch of who I was and what I wanted what was important mm. to just me and it was kind of I guess I was kind of wrapped up in all these roles of like you know providing for everyone else and making sure everyone else's needs were met that I actually like the 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 me of probably 40 years ago would have been surprised to ever have seen that there was a me a version of me that didn't mm. center myself like she'd have been like oh my gosh like like that would have been a dystopian future for her yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but like looking at it I'm like yeah I can see what she means though so like it would have been some sort of balance so of course the yeah. universe doesn't you know she'd be also surprised to realize that the universe does not in fact you know revolve around her <laughs> but like some sort of balance between like you know um there are things that I want that are different than you know independent of what other people yeah. in my own family might want and how can I do the things that I want what's standing in the way and still be the sort of mom that I want to be and still mm. you know be the person the sort of person that I want to be and so for me yeah like if I didn't do the degree I don't know that I would have centered me do you today. think that that's a, a gendered thing do you think women are much better at working to external deadlines than than you know if they have other responsibilities I don't know like I know for me um I like deadlines. I'm deadline driven mm. though, but it's also because I like rewards. So I'm, mm. re I'm reward driven. So when I, if I meet a deadline and, and I usually do, then I reward myself for doing it. 
Um, so I don't know if that's like, it could be my personality. It could just mm. be like um, the, the level of my rewards might be like a creamy cup of coffee <laughs> or like ordering um, because uh, there's like flavored cream is not a thing in the UK. And I have right. To I've been so curious about it. <laughs> oh, it is deli- like, I'm, I'm, it's like my little editor in the cup. And it yeah, makes me creamer. So is that what it's called? I... <laughs> it is. This one is French vanilla creamer. Oh, my goodness. And so I have hazelnut coffee, French vanilla cream, and it makes me uh, a happier person. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> find that thing that makes you happy. <laughs> well, I mean, so uh, another institution of writing and, and literature but also another massive reward is our prizes and I wanted to kind of ask you about prizes fast forward after your degree you received a lot of success and remembered has garnered a lot of success since its publication so among many other accolades you won the Northern Writers Award in 2017 and remembered was long listed for the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2019 and shortlisted for the Jarlock Prize in 2020 um and I know you've been on the judging panel for prizes as well. So I kind of, I wanted to ask you, how important do you think prizes are for writers uh, at the start of their career or later on in their career as well? I think they can be one of those things where um, you get more readers than you would have otherwise maybe received and readers outside who maybe readers who wouldn't have read the book otherwise. So in that respect, like the more people reading it, it's like definitely a good thing. Mm. Um, I feel like with the Women's Prize, I mean, there was a whole bunch of people who wouldn't have otherwise, you know, found remembered in the places that maybe um, marketing was looking for them. And so they stumbled across it or they, you know, it was advertised and it was like, wow, you know, I have to read this book. And then they, they read it. Um, even judging contests, though, there are books that like... Um, came across that I hadn't read before Mm. and they were you know had been out for almost a year or um in some cases like two years and I hadn't read them and that had nothing to do with the quality of the book it was just that you know I hadn't read it so I wouldn't have read it if I hadn't been in a position to to judge it and then being able to say like um in a meeting with other people on that panel um to champion this book and to say like oh wow but you know what about the themes and what about the characters and the sense of you know all those different things that I might love about a book and having those conversations and so as judges we're also readers and mm-hmm. that means that we're you know we're also reading the book and then we're you know recommending the book and so even if you don't like if a prize isn't awarded for the book it's um more and more readers and more and more like your audience kind of grows and it's more people who can support you and rally up behind you so Mm -hmm. I think they can actually be a really good thing um even if you you know don't win I think there's a um a danger I guess of writing a book solely because you want to win like Mm -hmm. a certain prize because there are one there's so many different prizes around the world and Mm -hmm. you know of course different ones value different things so you might say like oh I'm going to win the um the next Pulitzer Prize winning book, which of course was, you know, is always a goal. Um, but you might write that book and then for it's another competition, they're going, we really want a sense of place. Mm. And like for the other book, it was kind of like um, maybe the themes or, you know, something. And you're going, wow, like, I don't think I ever wrote where that place was. And so it's automatically not going to win this other one. And then and there's another one saying like, um, we really want a book that, um, advocates for this particular issue and you're going wow like my book doesn't do that and then another one's going we really want something set in Mm. 1933 and you're like what so (laughs) it's kind of um writing the book that you know 
you want to read mm. and re- there's so many different ways to reach audiences so mm. prizes I think are a great way to reach audiences but certainly not the I only think way in the last few years prizes have become more there's more of an awareness like you know I'm not just in literature but in in film as well I'm thinking of the you know the kind of Oscars so white um, a few years ago and um, yeah more of an awareness that prizes are who who they're awarded by um, and and why they're awarded I think um, but obviously it's still not a perfect institution no and I don't think it is but I think um, the work that they do it's finding ways to replicate that mm. so part of it is um, getting I think at the end of the day, if we want our books in the hands of more readers, like I was saying, and so mathematically, my math is wrong, right? So my youngest was telling me, but like I would say like every day I'm reminded that trillions of people have not read my books and that's, you know, long listed, short listed or not. They don't Mm. even know it exists. So it's not like they're going remembered. No, I'm not going to read that. They're going remembered. Like, I don't know about that. And so it's kind of like, how can I get that hand, my book into the hands of a reader that I'm going, oh you need to read this book. Like, yeah. um, you're going through these different things and it feels like they're all very new. But did you know that these same things are things we've been grappling with for, you know, centuries and yeah, the way that you feel isolated because your family is, you know, treats you a certain way. Um, this book might help you with that isolation or what, you know, whatever that is and kind of like, well, so how can I get it into the hands of those people? And so, yeah, prizes are, I think, a good way to do it. But then also there's got to be other ways to do it. And if we look at the prizes and say um, there are so many people who are not getting access to these prizes. Like I mm. love Sunny for the Dalek Prize for saying, OK, you know what? There's um, if black and brown people are not being awarded these prizes, I'm going to set up my own prize. Yeah. Like, and I feel like the more people do that, the more communities say, you know what? I'm not represented in that. I'm going to set this thing up and I'm going to do it like, you know, wonderfully I'm going to do a great job of setting this thing up and maybe the more and more we start doing that the other prizes are going to have to take notice and say okay yeah we've been ignoring and who have we been just you know completely dismissing um I know that there's things that people will say like oh um well this community doesn't read or this community and actually that's never been true it's maybe Mm -hmm. that that community doesn't see themselves represented in the things that you're publishing and so that community doesn't read you Mm. yeah absolutely I I mean and and other ways to get writers known and talking about their work and that kind of thing have have sprung up and one of those is um podcasting <laughs> <laughs> and you have your own podcast uh called write your novel so what was your original idea I mean actually you, you talked a bit about your radio work at university so I, I'm imagining that kind of fed into uh starting a podcast is that the case um, it is so the um the radio show, I absolutely loved doing it. But then, of course, with like the PhD and with the other um, events, and then I was coming to the end of my PhD, I needed to give something up. And so it was the radio show. I had a friend mm. who was doing podcasts and so I'm um, really interested in radio. So we created a team of um, of other journalists who could kind of go out and do that work. And I could just say, OK, goodbye. Um, and I, th- I feel like why I said goodbye to it, it was still like... I just love radio and that mm-hmm. whole old audio thing. So then when this opportunity came up, it was kind of like, I knew I wanted, um, especially with the pandemic. So everything was, you know, um, 
either online well, no, online. <laughs> and it was kind of like, how can I keep doing some of the things that I'm doing around events and around um, community? Mm. So some was doing events on like Facebook or um, on Zoom and kind of broadcasting them out. But probably also because I can't edit video, but I can edit, um, edit audio. I went to say, well, what can I do that's audio only? And of course, it was a podcast. Mm. Working with New Writing North, we devised a podcast where I would talk to writers about like a particular book. They would read to me, which I absolutely love. Mm. And then we could talk about a technique in that book that was really well crafted. And so it meant talking to award-winning authors about um, either like setting or description or dialogue or character structure, like all these different things that, you know, as a novelist were grappling with at any given time in any given project mm-hmm. and it was absolutely amazing because they were so generous like even more generous than I would have hoped for or could have hoped yeah. for and at the end of it I offered a, um, a writing exercise inspired by the book and so it was a lovely way I think to encourage people to to either try that technique or try something new in their own writing yeah. but when I think about it um, it was going to probably be one of those things that like you know how you do things and then later you're going wow so I also have a column with dyslexia mm-hmm. on breaking the mold where I get to talk to um, I get to read a book by a woman author um, it has to be contemporary and then I get to look at a technique that or something that seems to be done really well but also that's a bit um, unique mm-hmm. and so breaking the mold and then I get to, to read the book and then write a brief um, summary of like, so this is, you know, what happens. And this is also how they do this thing that's, you know, so wonderful about like what they're doing. And then I create an exercise to in- inspire and empower people to try that in their own writing. Mm. So like all these different things kind of tie together. So I yeah. love empowering people to, you know, to find the heart of their own story, but yeah. also to try just to do it, like to do the writing and doing, doing the trying so I think the podcast was kind of like that natural progression. Yeah. But I'm also devising a, a podcast now, which is no surprise, writers reading from their books. Yeah. So it's going to be super short. It's 30 minutes and they're going to read in that time. They get three times to read, but it's also going to be three questions. Mm. So I just ask three questions. They read three times and they tell us where to find the book. But at the heart of it, it's part of it is because, yeah, I love being read to. But then also so many wonderful books are out here and there's so many readers looking for them, but we're missing each other. Yeah. And I'm thinking this could be a way for us to, you know, meet at the same place. Yeah, exactly. And I um find that with this with this podcast, talking to people who are maybe they're authors, maybe they're booksellers, maybe they're publishers, people in literature adjacent jobs and roles, you get to find out so many interesting facts. And it yeah, you find out what each person's values are and how that industry works. And it's so fascinating and actually I hope kind of demystifying as well if you're maybe kind of curious about uh, either working yeah working with a bookseller or becoming one um so yeah I love podcasts obviously <laughs> and yours sounds fantastic I have to give them a listen oh thank you and also I'm pr- surprised that you say that you don't plot you're not a, a plotter necessarily with your novels because you sound to me like you're obsessed with technicality and writing and kind of the mechanics of how it all works is that is that true to say 
Um, I don't know that I'd say obsessed, but I do like um, I, I I like a good list. But that's another yeah. thing. I, um, <laughs> I'm um, I love organizing events, and I love when you know you have the the plan of it, and then you get to to experience it. Yeah, and, like the fruits of all of that. But in the book, I I write it for a different reason. Mm. So I write character driven prose, mm. and I don't know where it's going to end up. I don't know who's going to live at the end of it. And I like that. It keeps me curious. It keeps mm. me um, asking questions and returning to the page. Mm. If I know what's going to happen, then I feel like, ah, oh, I've done that. And that was great. Loved it. But I don't necessarily feel like I need to write it then. Mm. So I'm writing to figure out what's going to happen and getting to know the characters, which is always, you know, a lot of fun. Like, wow, they did what? And, you know, didn't see that coming. I, that's, I feel like for me, that's what keeps me coming back to any project. It's being like, oh, What's going to happen next? Mm-hmm. What are these characters going to do? Um, who are they going to hurt and why? So mm-hmm. all those questions, that's what I'm writing to figure well, out. I, and I suppose the technicality as well, the, the actual writing of language is, is about the process. It's not, you, you, you can't do it until you do it. You know, you can't say, okay, I'm going to use this specific metaphor in this page and blah, beforehand, can you? It's, it, it is about the process. Yeah, I feel like I couldn't do that. So when I write, I write out loud first. So that's kind of um, hearing it because I like the rhythms, I like the silence, I like the pacing mm. and the tension, and I can hear that. And so I might like speak a scene and kind of um, as if I was that character. And mm. then I can go down and I can type it. And when I get stuck now, also, so after I've done the draft or written the scene, then I might go back and say um, kind of reverse outline. Like, so what happened and, and why? And it helps me to find like, oh, wait a minute, this one wasn't set up or actually that character is dead. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I completely missed it or something like that. So I don't do it forward, but I might do it backwards. Yeah. Really only if I get stuck. And then the structure can come to it. Like once I kind of get it on the page or sometimes through the writing of it, you're like, oh, you know what, actually, mm-hmm. um, this is going to be all one day, or this is going to be only through the month of October. And so I might not know that sitting down, but it might come to me later. Yeah. So I want to talk a bit about Remembered, which I read and really enjoyed. And I, it's, um, it really lingers with you. I think after I, after I finished it, I couldn't stop thinking about it. Um, and it's, I think because it's, it's quite intense and it's intense in a lot of different ways at different times. Um, so my kind of brief description of it, and I always hate doing this because I, I want to be like, but it's about this and it's about this and it's also about this and it's also about this. But, but briefly, in 1910 in Philadelphia, a woman spring uh, finds her son in hospital injured from a streetcar accident, which may or may not have been his fault. Um, and that's kind of the first level of the story, which anchors the other sections of the narrative. Um, and the, the rest of it is about, um, it, well, it centers around the story of how both Spring and Edward came to be. Edward's her son. Um, it's a story of capture and enslavement, emancipation and reconstruction told through three generations. So my first question is, what I guess, what was the genesis of the story? Where did the ideas start forming in your head and how? So I would say I wanted to know... Um, before, so, you know, when you're doing the PhD, um, mm. the application and kind of the, um, all of that, and you have to kind of look at the questions you might write. I knew that I was interested in the emancipation in the U.S. and what happened after. I wanted to know about families reconnecting mm. um, because I felt like as a mom, that's one of those things that 
if I don't know where my kids are, like at the end of the day, I'm, um, you know, I would be worried if I, I always want my kids to know I love them. And so every day I, you know, remind them. Mm-hmm. And what is that like for a mother who doesn't get that chance, who, mm-hmm. um, whose child was taken away from her when, you know, maybe they were a baby, maybe they were a little bit older. And what happens if they do get to reunite? But that could be, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago or 50 years later. And what does that look like? Um, how do you recognize that person? But then even if you recognize them physically, even if, you know, what about that? All that time lost? Mm. How is that repaired? And how does that, um, who does that work? So I felt like I wasn't reading a lot about what happened, what that might have looked like. There's the reconstruction, but they don't really talk about the reconstruction of families. That's the reconstruction of the country. Mm. I was interested on that family level. And I know there's a lot, like I would be talking to my mom about it and she would say like, oh yeah, of course, you know, most people find each other. And I'm like, how do you know that? Like one, how's that even possible? Mm. And that to me sounds like it's one of those things that we might tell ourselves because we need to believe it or, you know, um, no one, I would think, wants to think of a whole bunch of families, like millions of people displaced, mm. millions of people never able to find one another, what that costs, what that looks like. And then like, there's this idea like, oh, people just kind of got on with it and moved on. Um, actually, no, like on the pa- on paper, maybe. And mm-hmm. it was probably easier for people who weren't experiencing it to feel like, yeah, I'm just going to, you know, you should just move on. My gosh, it's been like, you know, it's been a week, like, um, but when you're feeling that, when you're the one whose child is gone and you're you know, you're never going to see this person again, when you're scanning faces for that familiarity, mm-hmm. um, what might that be like and how haunting that could be? So for yeah. me, Remembered was kind of like a bit of a horror story. Yeah. And so um, that, that's what, that was the, the original seed was around what might it be like for families to find each other, how they might become families again, what that forgiveness might look like, what that journey mm-hmm. might look like, but also around how families might have cobbled together based on a whole bunch of people looking for a place to call home. Mm. And it does, I mean, structurally, it, it, it does that because you you have the first, first two thirds of the novel are kind of um, pre-emancipation in the, in the enslavement times. And then uh, the emancipation kind of period is so fast paced and overwhelming. And as a reader, you're, you can't, you feel exhausted at the end of it. And really like, you know, uh, the character kind of goes through this, it's like very quick, all of these things that happen to her and almost a bit surreal. And then at the end with the, the kind of reconstruction period you and, and it kind of brings it up to the present, you get this, it kind of slows down again, but you get the sense of heaviness and you think, oh mm. my gosh, because you know, you know, you have this kind of history in your head of like civil rights in the sixties and, and even up until the present day yeah. and you think, oh my gosh, it's so, you know, kind of left with this great sense of heaviness. Yeah. I think, which is, it's wonderfully written. Oh, thank you. But I think you're right. I think um, for me, there's all these parallels between kind of the life that we're living and mm. the life that, you know, has been lived. And I know it was important to kind of show those parallels for me while I was writing it. Um, so I, my, I raised my kids. My children were born in hospitals in Baltimore. We lived not far from there. And I worked in Baltimore when I was, um, working for the company, the PR company. Mm-hmm. Well, they didn't do PR. I did PR for them. But um, so we have a, a connection to Baltimore. We have uh, family still there, friends still there. And while we were living in the UK, the police in Baltimore killed Freddie Gray. Mm-hmm. 
And it was like, knowing that like that was the world that we could go back to was just um, a bit crushing. And knowing that like, you know, so my kids have, you know, been on these streets or been near these streets or could, you know, all those different possibilities going through. And it was like, okay, I need to write about that as well. I need to show mm. like some of um, some of that tension because we're still living that legacy. Mm. And so um, a lot of things, I think, from life kind of came, well, bought in, came into the book in ways that maybe I wasn't expecting at that time. Mm. I knew in the beginning that Edward was going to be beaten by police. I knew it was going to be for a crime. Um, I wasn't going to be clear. And like in the first draft, most through most of my PhD, I wasn't going to say like whether he did it or not, mm. because I always felt like that wasn't the focus for me. The mm. focus was here he was. Um, they thought he had done this crime, but there was no evidence or, you know, very limited ev- evidence. But what there wasn't was a trial. Mm. So there was no jury. No, no And the... Um, what would like the consequence for the crime? Whereas if he hadn't been a black man would have been going to jail and, you know, being sentenced. And then, um, but because he was, he was beaten by police. And so um, for me, I wanted to explore that on the page and Mm -hmm. I wanted to kind of bring attention to that on the page because at the end of the day, um, we need to really see people as people. And we need Mm -hmm. to recognize that people have these different stories, these different journeys outside of how we might expect it to be mm. and so for me it's kind of a, it's a form of that advocacy and how I might advocate for for change that I want and we need to see. Mm. You say in your acknowledgments that Remembered began with a series of questions which you then explored through practice-based research can you tell me a bit about that process what that means? So the practice-based research is, is the writing and the, mm-hmm. um, the reading is writing and the writing is writing and like and, um, and other research that goes kind of into the book, mm-hmm. into the, the time period and the laws and all those things. And it was really looking to the past to look at like, one, how can we make sure that we don't, how can we make sure we learn from the past? Mm-hmm. Which is, I think, um, a question that we, you know, we're either always asking and always exploring. I can't say that the answers, like I don't have answers to how can we not do these things. The writing of it gave me a chance to explore, I guess, the problem in these different ways and to look at um, more questions and mm-hmm. even more. It also, though, um, helped me to answer questions I didn't even know I had, like mm-hmm. around mothering. So what a question I think I ended up asking while I was writing it is kind of what are the limits? What will a mother do to protect her child? Um, even with all these different definitions of what protecting your child might be, what might you do if pushed to it? Mm. And each character has certain different things that they're willing to do. And for me, that was really fascinating. But it also helped me look at like my own relationship with my mother and also my relationship with my daughter. So what kind of mother am I and Mm. what things am I willing to do to keep my children safe? And so it's the practice-based research, I think it implies is going to be one answer when there's, you know, this lots of different answers that open up to lots of different questions mm. as well. And um, so the, the first two thirds of the novel uh, the, uh, don't shy away from the brutality of slavery and its legacy. And some scenes are really harrowing to read. Um, but throughout the novel, the language also is often really strikingly beautiful and poetic and most noticeably when it depicts the bonds between characters, but also the landscape and the changing times of day and the way characters move or look at each other. 
and you kind of weave these styles together really fantastically. And I think it's maybe the wrong question to to ask uh, which do you prefer, but probably which do you find more challenging? Um, sorry, which in terms of the language so or in, the... Ter- in terms of writing these, so there are these these kind of episodes where you're maybe writing about like a, the river or or characters kind of positive relationships and they're really they're very poetic and and beautiful so I suppose do you find it more challenging to write language that is 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 beautiful and and depicts really positive things or the the kind of the really harrowing graphic violent scenes it's interesting so I don't know that I um I don't know that I consciously differentiate between like yeah. the language that I use. So when, okay. until you said it, I'm like, oh, really? Is it like, yeah. like, like, so it's not, um, it's not something that I consciously do. Like, um, I think it's that the, the writing sort of happens. Um, I act it out loud as if I was that character mm-hmm. so that I can hear it. And then um, that's kind of how I write it. And so it could be that the, the parts that some of the, when the, some of the characters are either, when the lens is on one character, um, looking at another character, or thinking through their relationship with another character, it could be that that poetic sort of language comes through because that's the way that that character might be like thinking it or experiencing mm. it. And then when it's um, less poetic, but more like harrowing, it could either be that that's the lens of that narrator, um, that third person narrator, um, more removed or even that first person narrator but um, considering like so this is where I'm at right now this is how much time I have and this is what I need to say like that sort of thing but um, but yeah I haven't consciously like thought about it so it's a really interesting question um, yeah and I don't actually have a <laughs> that's really interesting that's yeah. really, I, I suppose as a reader it's different because you're coming to these uh, scenes for the first time whereas for you you're probably you're thinking about them you're working on them for a long period so it is yeah I suppose it's more about slotting them together and the technicalities and and depicting it Um, but you know I do love when when people read your work and then then they see something like different in it you're mm -hmm. just like oh yeah that's great I remember someone asking me about like um the relationship of, of water and kind of like how my relationship with water was and I'm like really <laughs> like um <laughs> like uh it is it's a very <laughs> elemental book there's 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 water and there's fire and I really liked that it's um yeah um and I I, I mean the, the novel is there's a lot of stuff to do with memory in there it's really um about memory but memory particularly in the form of spoken language and it's been really interesting to hear you talk about the way that you write and that you uh, and actually the way that you came to writing which is through talking um and through narrating verbally um I really liked the section at at kind of the immediate post-emancipation where all of these people were trying to find each other and the way Mm. that they did that was through telling stories and creating this kind of um verbal method of finding each other so yeah this section where spring the the main character kind of quickly realizes that just saying a woman with who's this high blah 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 is not is not going to work it's kind of getting to their essence and and describing that really briefly I really 
I, yeah, I really liked that. And it made me think like, of course, language becomes important when you don't have the means to write, when you don't have the means to communicate in any other way. Um, so I, I wonder what your considerations were before you started writing the novel in that so much of it is about verbally communicating and how you kind of, why you chose to write a novel or why you chose to tell the story in the form of a novel and how you kind of nodded to this this tradition of African-American verbal storytelling, which is was once integral or, or was once vital and is still integral. I think for me, one, um, I guess it was always going to be a novel. Mm. And um, because I love, I, I think because I love reading like the books and I love being read to. So it was mm. kind of always going to be a novel. And then for the stories, um, it's interesting to me because so the original title was Letters to Edward. Mm-hmm. And it was going to be tied around these letters that um, Tempe had written to him. Uh, before he was born and it had never gotten a chance to deliver to give to him and mm-hmm. so someone else would have had to carry them and while I was writing it uh, it started to be like well who taught Tempe how to read and then when did Edward learn how to read and then who was holding on to these letters and it's not that I couldn't like figure out so even though it was illegal to teach a slave to read mm-hmm. um, I feel like it was also immoral to keep slaves so mm-hmm. the sort of people who would uh, keep a person as a slave I would imagine they're you know fine with uh, breaking laws and doing whatever and if they were thinking well this is going to benefit me in some way then you know they would do that thing anyway so it wasn't necessarily teaching her to read but then it was kind of getting um, so who taught Edward when did he learn and, and like all those different kind of um Mm. cogs kind of started taking the novel in a way like weighing it down Mm. um because it was that and also because I knew Edward had been beaten by police but I wanted him to have this um some sort of medical condition where Mm. um they wanted to figure out what it was so that they could find out what he knew about something else so it was it wasn't really about saving his life for the sake of his life but it was Mm. saving his life because they wanted they needed something from him Mm -hmm. And so by the time I finished like weighing it down with all these like artificial um, like weights on it, it, um, and it <laughs> I was on a medical board so that I could find out around uh, like, so what kind of medical condition would he have had yeah. in 1910? And um, also I wanted him to have something hereditary that had been passed down to Agnes, which was like all these different like kind of yeah. what ifs. And on the medical board, they were like, um, you're a writer, can't you make it up? And I'm like, yes, but I wanted it to be like, you know, true. And not yeah. that I wanted people to try this, this herb and, you know, have the consequences that it was going to have, but I wanted it to do what I kind of said it was going to do. Yeah. So there was that. And w- but once they said that, it was like, okay, one, I'm the only one who cares about that thing. But also they were saying that what I was aiming for in 1910 wouldn't have been what they thought about because in 1910, Philadelphia, he was a black man and they would have assumed he had, I can't even remember what they would have assumed he had, but um, they would have assumed this, um, this one condition and it was never about that. So it mm. was like, okay. Um, and they wouldn't have done anything with DNA because it wasn't a thing in 1910 for them. Mm. So I was like, okay, uh, take that away. And then the letters though, they, they still had this kind of weight. And then Jen was like, why don't you change the title? And I'm like, do what? <laughs> And um, once she said that, it was like it freed up the novel. Mm. But the stories, of course, would still be there. And it was kind of um, what else do you give to someone when you have nothing else to give? And it was the stories. Mm. And so they became more and more important. Like when um, 
so there's the the part where you're talking about and then also when like after that when they're going when they're traveling to philadelphia and um when they're kind of in this truck there's stories you know people get in or uh, people get in and they leave their stories behind Mm -hmm. and for me it was like yeah like what else do they have if they want to be remembered by someone and someone says i'm keeping this you know this book and um that's what you give you give your stories in whatever form and you tell them and you um you might have it might actually be a rock but you tell the story about this rock and then you give it to this person yeah the way they're inheriting this story i think the way that you you honor that in in the novel is through this this supernatural elements through the 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 power of like this ghost and yeah that it becomes so important this remembering this telling the story that it kind of physically manifests almost it felt like um tempe she was my first character she's the first one that i came to yeah that came to me and like her name um my great grandmother's name is tempe i Mm. never got to meet her and she wasn't enslaved um i just there was something to me about using characters names using real people's names for some of the characters Mm. that meant that I was going to write them in a bit more human way and be more tender Mm. and um I felt like I needed that and I wanted that and so like Tempe's name is from my grandmother um I'm sorry my great-grandmother uh there was an Agnes in the family there was an Edward in the family and yeah for me it was just a way to be like okay I'm going to treat this character with some tenderness I'm also going to make them um complex and a way in the way that, that yeah in the way that you can only see your family really as <laughs> that equal frustration and and love <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> <laughs> but there, there are there are so many I mean there there are wonderfully drawn male characters but actually they seem they're sort of supporting all of these these female characters um was that a conscious decision for you before you started writing the novel yeah, I knew that Edward was, um, I knew his, well, actually, I knew his ending before mm. um, before I started. And I also knew that he wasn't going to be able to speak much in the novel. I, I didn't want there to be um, a lot of scenes with him in it. I was getting ready to say this, uh, something, but I feel like that would have been a spoiler to like the whole thing. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but so I, I felt like he was always going to be limited. Walker, I didn't want him to be able to say much of anything. Mm. Um, so I was really like, for him, he doesn't, I think, ever get to say more than a sentence. Mm. Um, and I think visually it was meant to be like one line, maybe at the most two. Mm. And that silence was so that, because I feel like there's so many other books that look at the um, the enslavers view of slavery mm. um, or even abolitionists and their view of it. But in this book, I wanted it to be the people who had been enslaved. And I wanted it to be their story, their books. I wanted them to have the um, definitely the most time on the page and the most we had the most access to them. We mm. get to see Walker. We get to see um, his father, um, even Edward. Um, we get to see them, but the story's not kind of told through them. But we get to see their impact as well. But mm. yeah, so that was a conscious decision about who gets to, to speak. For my PhD, I did, um, for the thesis, I was able to do a chapter that was inspired by what it w- would look like if we did a um, literary salon mm. where I was talking about my book, reading from my book, and my characters were in the audience. And um, it was interesting to me. Like, I was going to let uh, mm. Walker speak for it. And then I was like, nope. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> so which felt like it feels empowering too. Like Absolutely. You know but what? it also it just it mirrors lots of novels and 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 art and TV and films that are set during that period, but have no acknowledgement to to slavery you know that uh, uh, it's a full white cast and it's never acknowledged that that was a thing at that time and actually in order for characters to live lives of like wealth and ease and privilege and which is often what these novels and yeah. films are, are those are those characters it's not acknowledged that that's off the back of slavery often no you're right and it's always interesting to me the conversations people want to have around like oh we should um let's stop talking about slavery we should get over that but nobody says let's stop talking about you know like these these grand mansions mm. and how people got them or that money that legacy what they were able to achieve because they were enslaving other people mm. they want to still keep that they want to still keep that name that they acquired the um when they talk about, well, oh, we don't still have that money, but you still have that property. And actually mm-hmm. that money, um, it's that value and that legacy of that, that you, you know, you still have your title, you still have all of these different things. So you still have how you've benefited. You've just been able to draw on that benefit, mm-hmm. you know, for contemporary times and invested in different ways or whatever, but they don't say, well, you know what, actually, um, anything that I've gained through it, I'm just going to give that up now because since we're, since we're all getting over it, um, I'm also going to, you know, get over the the things that I've acquired. Nobody says that. They only yeah. want you to stop talking about the things that make them uncomfortable. It's really interesting, actually, because I think for a lot of people, their knowledge of American history uh, is is like it's slavery, and then it jumps straight to kind of like '60s civil rights, right? And there is not there's not a huge amount of media in the kind of the intervening years so it kind mm. of you you miss out that whole that bridge connecting and it. it makes it easier to to in your mind gloss over it, I think and mm. forget that the, the kind of the difficulty and that actually it, these are not two separate time periods they're connected they're on a continuum the legacy of slavery is it it, it, it hasn't just disappeared you know you know I think that's exactly what it is. And I felt like that's the thing that empowered me to write Remembered as well, because um, I have no idea if any of my family had been enslaved, but mm. I felt like I have inherited the legacy of slavery. Mm. And so, yeah, I was going to write about it. And, and if people were going, oh, I don't want to read another slavery book or whatever, then maybe this isn't the book for you, but actually maybe you're reading about it in different ways. So you're mm-hmm. reading about characters being enslaved and maybe they're not set in the U.S. It's set, you know, somewhere. It always amazes me. Like, you know how when you look at um, like science fiction movies and horror movies mm-hmm. and they, um, they're like, what if something came from another planet and or like another country and they, um, they enslaved us? And, yeah. you know, if we had the work, you know, we, we just we weren't you know, paid or anything. And we were um, we were beaten and we we our children were sold from us and my gosh, like this would be horrible. So yeah, it happened. And you're going, what if like this whole nations where this is exactly what's happened and they're yeah. living this legacy. So it's, it's only someone else's horror when it's not them. So yeah. it's really like all of that. It's just so interesting to me. No, absolutely. And there's a whole, like the, um, it's the US military has these weird like connections with Hollywood, doesn't it? And that's why you have all these like military movies with aliens where the military is like depicted as so brave and like against this evil, but it's propaganda basically. 
it does crack me up because it's like you go to the movie and when you look at some of the things that they're they're talking about and you're going wow like this is you know a history lesson right here mm-hmm. but even that idea of getting people to to kind of um like now suddenly everybody is everybody right and so it's mm-hmm. like oh we're gonna save everyone and we need everyone's help and you're going actually we need everyone's help for what yeah like, um you're asking everyone to save like everyone else like everyone who has been oppressing them everyone who's been you know um racist to them like all these different things so you're asking other people to save them now mm-hmm. although through generations they you know, had not saved them. So you're saying now we're all in it together. Mm. How can we selectively be all in it together? And then even if we all are into it together, if we, you know, defeat whatever is attacking us from somewhere else, we're defeating that so that we can go back to how things were here. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes I I think I want to see a movie where they're like, um, okay, so something comes from somewhere else, and they're going, oh no, they're going to do the same to us, and then actually that something comes, and actually it's it's better. Things are better than they were before. And like, (laughs) yeah, that's really interesting. Actually, talking to Susan Watkins a few episodes of this podcast before about women's dystopian fiction. She was Mm. saying women women are less invested in the current status quo. So actually, it's really interesting to look at what their science fiction says about envisioning a world that maybe is is better than it could be, you know. Yeah. Anyway, that's very <laughs> off topic, but we've actually been talking for almost an hour and a half. Um, so I probably should wrap it up there. But thank you so much for being so generous with your time. And I've really enjoyed this conversation. Oh, thank um, but, you for having me. Um, how, how, can, how can we find out more about you there's a couple of ways so one is i'm on social media so i'm on twitter at um just why battle felton i'm on instagram as why i write battle felton um there is a why battle felton on instagram it is me (laughs) um i don't know what my password for that one was i cannot access it so it's why i write battle felton (laughs) there's got to be a way to unlock it i just don't know what it is um or people can join me on Saturday, May 28th, to uh, write with me. We're going to be writing about um, a swiftly tilting planet. And it's fine if they haven't read the book, but we're going to be using some of the themes and some of the um, writing for advocacy so that they can write about a cause they care about. They can write about science fiction as well. So we'll be using time travel to start, but they can use anything else you know that they want to finish with. But it's going to be some time to write and to reflect and to write together. So I think that's a great way to get to know me and, you know, mm. what I'm about. And you can book tickets for that through Eventbrite or through our, the library website. Um, and I, yeah, I really, really, really recommend that. <laughs> and I really recommend Remembered. And we, I mean, if you're a member, we have a copy here at the library. So do come and check it out if you're interested. Um, Yvonne, thank you so much for chatting today. Um, Molly, thank you. And thank you for your questions. I super enjoyed writing them. It's always nice when I get to read a book um, for this, actually. It's one of the best things about it. This has been a podcast from the Leeds Library. Links to more information about our guests and any works talked about can be found in the description. If you'd like to find out more about the Leeds Library and any of our upcoming events, please visit our website at www.theleedslibrary.org.uk or you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook at the Leeds Library. Thank you for listening and keep your eyes and ears peeled 
for more Tales from the Leeds Library in our future episodes released every Wednesday. <laughs>